Welcome to the Work-Life Brilliance Podcast with executive coach and best-selling author, Denise Renee Green. Denise fills each episode with humor, compassion, knowledge, and pragmatism to help you transform your life. Listen in and learn how you can tame your brain, lower your stress, and become the person you were born to be. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the podcast. The show today is very special and very different than what I usually do because I have my good buddy, John Franco, on the call with me. John, you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. And so John and I um, know each other from way back, and we got a chance to get reconnected a week and a half ago. And we are two people who don't waste time. So um, when we connected a week and a half ago, the next day I said to John, hey, you want to do a podcast and finish our conversation in front of everybody? (laughs) And I believe you said, um, I'm at once terrified and excited about the prospect of that. And then then now we are recording it. So Now here we are, (laughs) terrified and excited at the same time. So thank you, my friend. So um, just a little context. Uh, John and I went to graduate school together. And John, I think I figured out that we uh, met in 1996. <laughs> All right. And, um, and then we last saw each other except for last week um, in 2001 and we re- at our graduation. And we reconnected when, um, when I wrote the book. And you sent me this email um, about the book. <laughs> A testimonial about the book, or you posted it on Amazon. I don't know. I don't know what what happened, but it was um, it just was really touching um, for me. It was like one of my favorite testimonials ever, and um, and a lot happened since we last met. So um, you know, long story short, John's going to give you the story. But John has six months to live every six months. So John, why don't you tell people what happened? After we graduated from the master's program at Stanford, um, what the heck happened to you? And, um, and then we'll banter back and forth about that and how we got to where we are today. Okay. Well, a lot happened, but the main thing that happened that was life-changing was uh, having a very large headache while I was giving uh, bankers a tour of real estate properties. It was happening all day. I forgot my sunglasses. I thought this has to be what a migraine feels like. I've never had a migraine before and I should have brought my sunglasses on this summer tour of real estate properties doing my daily job for my company I was working for. Um, The headache didn't go away after taking lots of Advil. And when I came home and told my wife that at the time, she got really worried. I actually was trying to put my head in comfortable positions. Nothing made it comfortable. We both were worried about it. It eventually went away. I think I just fell asleep because I was exhausted. And I don't know if it went away or not, but there was like a tiny little headache the next morning. She made me promise to go see the doctor. So cutting to the chase, I went to go see the doctor. He did all these neurological tests. Um, and he's like, you look fine and everything is healthy with you according to these tests we just did, but your description of the headache is a little unusual. So I'm going to make an appointment for you at the end of today because his day is booked with a neurologist up at Stanford university. So I said, okay, great. Uh, I show up in this dark waiting room. 
There's nobody in the hospital. It was kind of creepy and spooky uh, sitting in a dark waiting room. The only thing, the only light I could see on is the tiny little light in the square of the door that showed kind of down where the doctors hang out and the door opened up and the neurologist let me in and uh, we go in the room and he's got all of my like slides from the scan I took earlier that day with the other general practitioner. And I don't know how to read a, uh, a CT scan, but I did see something huge and white in my brain image. And uh, he quickly got to the point and he just said, there's a, uh, a tumor the size of a tennis ball in your right frontal lobe of your brain. I can't believe you're sitting here talking to me and functioning fully given the size of the tumor and you're going to have brain surgery tomorrow to remove this tumor because um, uh, it's kind of dangerous to have a brain a tumor this size and, and worry about what might be happening to you. Then, then he said, uh, you have the option of uh, driving yourself across the street to the emergency room and checking yourself in. I thought that was really weird because he just told me it's weird. I should be like having seizures and not functioning on one part of my body. And he's surprised I'm able to speak, but go ahead and drive yourself across the street to the Stanford ER, check yourself in. We already have your surgery scheduled for tomorrow. And it was one of those like, holy crap moments in life where the only surgery I had had up to that point was um, getting my wisdom teeth out. And now in the scope of, you know, a few minutes, I've got to drive myself across the street, check myself in, let my parents know, let my wife know that this is all happening because all they know is I had a series of appointments scheduled that day. And it's now like eight thirty at night and they don't know where I am. So I had to give her a call, let her know, Hey, I'm having brain surgery tomorrow. I have a tumor the size of a tennis ball in my right frontal lobe and get up here as soon as possible so you can, you know, get the info, get the download and go through this with me. The next day I had the surgery, the tumor removed and um, it was about an eight to nine hour surgery and news came back very positive after the uh, doctor removed the tumor and the tissues were tested. They said, okay, we were able to remove about 95% of this tumor, and um, it looks like it's a benign tumor, which in the tumor world is a big home run, mm -hmm. uh, meaning it's slow growing. It shouldn't come back fast at any point, and um, you should be home free for at least the next 10 to 20 years. It's something we want to monitor, but uh, good job on just having a benign tumor. So Liz and I were like giving each other high fives. Um, in the meantime, we know an oncologist at Stanford and he's like, Hey, there's this thing at Stanford called the tumor board. And usually when you deal with things like this, it's good to go in front of a panel of experts and not just rely on the uh, advice of one, um, oncologist or one surgeon or one pathologist that's doing your tissue, uh, examination. So we're like, okay, great advice. We're going to take your word for it. Uh, he did this on his own time, and we thought it was very generous and uh, kind and thoughtful for him to look out for us. So this is all happening around just before Christmas. We get a call the day after Christmas, and its I won't mention his name because I didn't get permission, but he said, hey, it's Dr. So-and-so, just following up on that conversation we had about you giving us permission to take us to the tumor board. We are all in kind of agreement that even though they said it's benign, it would be better to get your MRI sooner than later to make sure that it is benign. So 
immediately red flags kind of went up and we're kind of like, Oh shit. Uh, I'm, I don't know if I can swear in this hey, uh, conversation, swear. but it's I fine. just did. Okay. Oh, disclaimer. Yeah, and there um, will be swearing yeah. in this podcast and there also might be tears. So you might want to get some tissues. It's all good. <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, we go back and get, instead of waiting six months for this MRI, we do it in like three to four months and we get permission and all the insurance things taken care of. And in that MRI, the tumor had grown back to like 40% of its original size in the short time period of four months. So we're like, okay, this is not benign. Now we need to do something about this. We schedule another surgery, and this is, you know, only a few months after the original surgery. So let's call it four to five months after the original surgery. They drill holes. They take samples of the tumor that's growing back. Now, instead of being a benign tumor, it is the most aggressive type of tumor that they're aware of um, in the brain tumor world, and it's called the GBM or glioblastoma. And now the story has completely changed. We're meeting with a neuro-oncologist and a neurosurgeon, and the message they're giving us now is people with this type of tumor usually live for about 12 to 13 months. So you have about a year to live given the statistics and you should get your affairs in order, make sure you've got a last will and testament or a living trust. All these things that we hadn't, you know, young, younger people in their thirties don't think of completely because we still think we're invincible at that age. So now we are blown away by the fact that I might not be around in a year and we have to sign up for some kind of a clinical trial to address this issue with Western medicine and we're clueless and we made the mistake of, you know, doing research on the internet, which is dark and dismal and scary stuff out there. And it's totally freaking us out. Um, and the journey began there uh, about with that news on um, how to address this, how to treat it. We ended up having a, until we, came up with a game plan on how to fight it with chemotherapy and whatnot. We couldn't get the, uh, the next surgery. So there were three surgeries in a, a period of about six to seven months. The last surgery is to remove as much of the tumor as possible, get me into the clinical trial where there were three experimental drugs being used at one time in addition to radiation therapy, and that lasted for about a year and a half. Um, I don't know if you have questions right now at this point, or if I should just keep going with the story on the details well, of what, what me, went on. Yeah, let me ask you, I have so many questions, but um, I'm not going to ask them all right now, but just give us roughly like, how long ago this was, because people are probably a little worried about you right now. So just oh, roughly, roughly. Yes. So this all happened in September and October of 2008. And right now we are February 2020. So we're talking about 12 years ago, 12 and a half years ago okay. when this happened. So I just want everybody to like take a breath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you, I think we can all kind of imagine the emotions that you must have felt. And a lot of people listening to this have known somebody or um, had somebody close to them or um, been given a diagnosis of their own. Um, you use the word freak out. Um, so yes. I just want to kind of, and I've done a couple of podcasts on stress and healing, and unfortunately, stress makes it harder for the body to heal. And of course, when we get a diagnosis like this, 
our brain doesn't go to a happy place. <laughs> it, yeah. most, most people's brain does not go to a happy place. Um, so, and I, did you have, you didn't have children at this time, did you? Or did you? We did. Our kids are three and four years old at this time. Okay. Um, so, so, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, the, those phone calls I was making from the Stanford parking lot before I walked into the emergency room. Yeah. So I drove myself across the street successfully. No seizures were had, no accidents. Mm -hmm. Made it into the parking lot. And then I, making that call to my wife, Liz, and my mom was uh, almost as stressful as asking her to marry me, I, but stressful in a very negative, different way. Like, how is she going to take it? Right. What, uh, how do I explain this in a short amount of time? Because I have to get to this ER. And how are the logistics going to work of Liz getting the kids to a safe place so she can come up here and be with me during this time? Right. Uh, those are like side details, but very important details. As far as receiving the news from the doctor, what that felt like, it, my, uh, your, my body went numb. It's like I couldn't feel any part of my body and um, I was having a hard time breathing, but Eventually, you know, you keep breathing because you, that's what your body does. Uh, tears flowed from both of us, and we just kind of had to, like, uh, make sure we were hearing the news right. So we, we asked him to repeat himself when he gave us this news. Liz asked me to explain it to her because I don't think she was hearing anything. I think she heard one year to live and get your affairs in order, and her brain just shut down. So she looked at me and had me explain it to her. There was something oddly comforting of me being able to explain that to her. So it made sense to her. And I kind of like, even though I heard that there was a year to live, I kind of felt like we got this. I don't know why, but we're going to deal with this. And even though the stats say a year to live, I think we can maybe do a little better than that. <laughs> and that was, that was something straight from the heart. It wasn't logical. There was no reasoning to it, but maybe it was me wanting to comfort her from her just totally bawling and uh, thinking life is crashing down on her. But there was a truth to it that I wasn't, I wasn't faking it. I wasn't just telling her to make her feel good. There was a part of me that felt somewhere deep down inside that we can do better than, you know, 12 to 13 months. <laughs> I don't know why. So, uh, so you had a, I don't know question. why either, but, um, you had a reason you had a and you had something within your span of control right then which was i'm going to explain this to liz that's within your span of control yes. so i think that probably okay. helped reduce your stress in the moment and it totally also, did you're also now doing something for her instead of being the victim of your story yeah and that why it's nietzsche who said i'm paraphrasing any man who has a why can handle any what and you were just like I, I have a why. <laughs> I got to stay here. I got to stick around and make every minute count and get as many minutes as I can. And I just want to interrupt the reason why people, why besides this is a fascinating story that John and I are talking about this. Um, so I've just been writing about perspective and how having perspective helps you reduce overwhelm and reduce stress and become more productive. And by productive, I mean making producing the most value in a day and value is not always something that you create or something monetary 
Um, value is sometimes something that you are, that you feel, a presence that you have, a connection that you have with somebody. And um, so spoiler alert, we are all going to die. <laughs> it's going to happen. And uh, some people are in denial of that. I've been, I don't know, I've been fascinated with death since I was a kid. I was reading about afterlife, you know, life after death experiences when I was a kid. Um, and I just wanted to learn more because people didn't talk about it. And it was like the elephant in the room. And I know I live, like John, John, there's John 1.0 and then there's John 2.0 now. And there, you met Denise 1.0 and now there's Denise 2.0 now. Um, and part of the reason we grew was because we had life altering calamitous experiences. Uh, and what I hope with this podcast is that people get some perspective without ha having to have the life threatening experience um, and that you get perspective right now and decide that whatever thing is bugging you, whether it's your boss or your kid who won't do their homework or whatever it is, you put it into perspective and think about, you know, we don't know how many days we have left. I know I've heard some podcasters um, who follow the ancient Greek um, way, esoteric way, will have a little clock, countdown clock literally on their computer reminding them that they're going to die. And they set the clock to like age 75 or 80 or something like that. I'm like, yeah, the clock might have 10 minutes. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> so how do we live life to the fullest and make it meaningful and not fear the outcome. I'm personally, what I fear is not living a life of purpose. And I, I was on a trajectory of doing that for a long time. And I think, um, so, so let's, let's go back to your story. And, um, first of all, I, I'm going to ask you the question I asked you last Sunday. And that was, why do you think you're here? Cause you shouldn't be here. According to the stats, you were in a yeah, clinical trial. According that to all of that. How many people were in your clinical trial? Uh, there were in the neighborhood of 80 people in the clinical trial. And um, according to the doctors that ran the trial, I'm still the only one that's around right now. And uh, nobody knows the answer to why. I still see my doctor every six months to this day. And she is a very bright neuro-oncologist at one of the best oncology centers in the United States. And she just says, whatever you're doing, just keep doing what you're doing. because." I don't have an answer as to why you're here, but uh, I'm sure glad you're here. And I hope we see each other again in six months and we give each other a big hug and say, all right, six months, <laughs> this is going to be great. <laughs> so, you know, some people say everything happens for a reason. And I like to say that we get to pick a reason. We get to pick and assign meaning to something. And you did a double whammy of, um, first of all, saying, I got this. I can, I can get us better than that. Which is huge to go to that place instead of the, oh, no, I only have. You went from a place of scarcity to a place of abundance, given the worst news possible. And then um, you kept an open mind. Like, you did the Western medicine thing. But tell us a little bit about how your mind opened up and how you uh, explored other things. Okay. So um, during the clinical trial, now I've had the third surgery 
we're open to the radiation and to the three experimental drugs uh, on this trial called the AT&T trial. And um, the tumor during that year and a half uh, stayed at bay. So every time we took a MRI, which went from one uh, an MRI every one month to every two months to every three months to every four months, and eventually we got up to every six months. And um, so you are interviewing a brain cancer, an active brain cancer patient right now, and I totally forgot the question. Can you ask me one more time? <laughs> oh, you can't blame that on the brain. You can't blame that on your tumor. That, that's well, I'm, I'm also, I also just turned 50, so there's yeah. two things going on yeah, here. Yeah, you can blame it on that. And... <laughs> <laughs> Plus but, the oh, the Western, Western to Eastern medicine. Okay, I, I got it. I got yeah, this. There you go. <laughs> okay. So um, it, things were going well in the clinical trial. The tumor wasn't coming back, and it didn't come back during that month and a half. And we're taking these images, and I'm doing my chemo and radiation. And um, there reached a point, and the doctor had a, our, you know, our six-month meeting or our four-month meeting or whatever it was at the time. And she said, okay, we've reached a point in the trial where you have a choice. And I thought, oh, finally a choice. Like at the beginning of the trial, you sign your life away to the, the medicines that you're about to take. You always have the choice of removing yourself from the trial. If you feel too sick, too weak, too ill, or no longer uh, interested in, in being a part of the trial. But uh, I, that's not in my personality. I've, if I'm going to do something, I'm going all out. I'm going to give it my best shot. If I'm feeling sicker than sick, I'm still going to do the medicine if it's doing its job. But when we reach this point of me having a choice on continuing for six more months or stopping the clinical trial and trying other things, I had to address her question. Do you want to continue or do you want to stop? At that point, I took a deep breath and if I and I just wanted to be honest with myself and the messages my body was sending me at the time. And at the time, if my body had a voice, it was telling me, okay, great, the tumor is dying or dead. We don't know, but it's not coming back right now. But I also, John, feel like we are dying in the process too. And I don't know that we can make it six more months in this trial because if the medicine is killing the tumor, it's also killing me. And I don't know if I can make it six more months. And in the back of my head, I've always wanted to try something else, but it was never an option because the, the tumor was growing so aggressively. It needed something to just kind of zap it in that moment. And Western medicine was definitely the answer to that in that moment. But now that I had a choice and things were stable, like they had been over the last year and a half, I felt my body felt like it's time to try something a little more healing in nature, a little more natural uh, than putting poison into your body to kill the tumor, which was also killing myself. So Liz was not in agreement with my decision at the time, but I had to tell her, Hey honey, I feel like I'm dying while the tumor's dying. And if you want me around long-term, we've got to try something else because everything inside of my body is screaming, stop. So we stopped and I opened up my mind and my body and everything to alternative therapies out there. And if it was healing in nature, whether it was nutrition, nutritional supplements, scorpion tail pills, which is something that I tried, 
Vietnamese healing, healing touch, Reiki, visualization therapy, a ton of different things exist out there that are energy healing in nature that make your body feel better when you're done with it versus feel like it's dying when you're done with it. I was open to the world and the possibility that the world had for healing my body and possibly healing or getting rid of that tumor in some way, shape, or form by having the body tell it to get out or by having my body say, I can fight this tumor on my own by making my body healthy and giving it a chance to fight on its own instead of weakening the immune system that will not be able to fight on its own. So that's the direction that I chose at that point. Wow. Okay, you said something really powerful and profound uh, and when you said, if my body had a voice. Had you been able to hear before or was it that moment that something changed? But could you tell before if your body was telling the truth um, or lying? Um, before cancer, I was not good at listening to my body. I, you know, when you reflect back on what my life was like before getting that brain tumor diagnosis, I was working 60 to 80 hour weeks. I was prioritizing work over family a lot of the time. And um, if I'm being honest, that day I went to the hospital and got the brain tumor diagnosis, my body felt toxic, not from medicine or chemo or anything like that. It felt toxic from overworking it and not having a, a good, I would call it a work-life balance, except I know there's a better book out there. I didn't have work-life brilliance going on in my life. So my body was talking to me. Is My body didn't want to exercise. My body didn't want to do things that were healthy for it. it. It was overworked. And as a result, I just felt like the blood flowing through my veins was not healthy blood, but I wasn't doing something about it. Uh, and then as a result, I get this diagnosis and everything in life changed from that moment on. So, and I hear this in your voice and you told me this, and now we understand why, is that you said that this was the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Yes, I also said if I had to, if I had to go back in time and not get that brain tumor diagnosis, as weird as it might seem, I wouldn't change anything that happened. Life has been better and my quality of life has been better and the quality of the relationships in my life have been better since going through all of that, everything that I just explained. Had I continued on that path that I was on, I'm not sure where I'd be right now, but I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have experienced uh, the depth of loving and um, detail to life that's made it a, a much better life than it was before brain cancer. And I know that sounds weird to someone that's sitting out there healthy right now. Like, why would someone choose to have brain cancer? It's, you know, it's not choosing been... to have brain cancer. It's just having an event to change the path of your life and making it a better life from that point on. I don't know. I think you've been very convincing. Uh, I mean, there's a whole reason people have midlife crises, and that's because they don't have the physical crises early on. Uh, so you're going to have a, hopefully, hopefully you will have a crisis in your life that wakes you up. Um, 
And I used to read books, John, on trying to um, listen to my body. I, I could not feel my body. It would not talk to me. I could, well, it was talking to me, but I, I wasn't listening. I was doing like you. I um, was acting from a different place. Um, thoughts that had no basis in reality. Thoughts of you're not doing enough. You're not good enough. Work harder. You know, um, I was operating from that voice instead of the true voice um, that wanted me to stop and say, what direction are you going? Whose life are you living? And I remember when um, I, so I uh, broke my back, um, right, not long before I met you, um, I was in a car accident and broke my back. And that was a huge wake up call. And I did go into traditional Western medicine, which made me very sick. Um, it wasn't killing me, but it gave me rheumatoid arthritis. And you know, some people would say we have rheumatoid arthritis. And in fact, the, the rheumatologist says you need to take these meds and they were toxic, toxic medicines. I'm like, so I have a disease and you want to give me toxic medicines. Let me get this straight. And I went back to my doctor who um, was a Western medicine doctor, sports doctor though. So he was all about rehabilitation was a doctor for the 49ers. And I told him, I said, I have a hunch that all the steroids you've been shooting into me the past three years have caused this rheumatoid arthritis. Because I'm 28, this shouldn't be happening. And he said to me, I think you're right. I don't know how to fix it. Now, I was so impressed that this Western doctor said, I think you're right. I don't know how to fix it. But I know somebody who does. And then he sent me to this doctor who's Eastern and Western trained. And you know, you said in the beginning, you had one doctor who said it's benign. And then you had another doctor who said, mm, let's check that. Um, another thing I want people to just hear is that doctors are human, they make mistakes. And they do not teach energy healing in medical school, even though the body is an energetic system and Chinese medicine has been operating on that plane for millennia. Uh, if you've ever had acupuncture and you felt that shock, you know when they hit that connection where two energy meridians meet, it's real. And what John was describing, his body was toxic from all the overwork and stress, um, and he was vibrating at a very low survival rate frequency, and that is when disease happens. And my new doctor told me that disease happens when the body is out of balance, so instead of attacking the disease, we are going to put the body back in balance. We're going to figure out where it's in balance and put it back in balance. And six months later, and now 20 years later, I have no rheumatoid arthritis. We fixed the imbalance that was caused by all the steroids that were flushed in my system. So uh, your thoughts will drive your behavior. Your doctor's thoughts will influence your behavior. So notice those thoughts and your, vo your body will tell you the truth. Uh, I've talked a lot in my podcast about ener um, energy and how the body has intelligence and you can muscle test this. And there's a book uh, by Hawkins called Power Versus Force. And he was one of the first people to measure everything's energy signature and figure out that through kinesiology, muscle testing, you can ask your body a question and it will tell you whether it's true or false. If, it has a strong, if your arm has a strong reaction to the question, it's true. Just test this with your name. Have somebody push on your arm and say, silently, 
is your name Fred? If your name's Fred, you'll be strong. If your name's not Fred, you'll be weak. So the body has this intelligence, but we, uh, we get so far from the body that we don't hear it. And my accident wasn't enough. Like that was a wake up call, but maybe I was too young. Maybe it wasn't bad enough, John, but I had to um, have a near death experience a year and a half ago when I'm three blocks from my house. Um, so I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping I've, I've met my karmic debt and um, I'm awake enough. Um, and I'm hoping that our listeners don't have to go through all that to get some perspective. So I'm just going to pause because I've been blabbing. So um, what, um, what about what I've said about energy healing or anything? Perspective has resonated with you or given you an idea? All of it. Um, I've certainly had that moment of acupuncture where you get the zing and you know there's energy uh, pulsing through your body and it has a healing component to it. Um, yeah, the, the six months at a time, which we really haven't uh, addressed or gotten to yet, but that is a, a real reminder to live your life fully in a short period of time that we really should get to. So tell us how that motivates you instead of getting you down, because a lot of people would get down by knowing that okay, I got to go in in six months again and see if I'm dying. Well, that day that that appointment happens is a roller coaster ride. So the drive up to San Francisco to get the MRI and get the results of what's going on inside of our brain, inside of my brain, which is unknown. Things could be growing and going on during that six months. And we could find, you know, another tumor the size of a tennis ball or a golf ball or whatever. They like to do balls in their uh, tumor size reference points. So um, it's anxiety. It's an anxiety-filled drive up there. Of course, negative thoughts creep in. I think that's human nature. It is for me. Yeah. And then when you sit, you, we have the MRI. The MRI for me is actually a peaceful moment uh, because it's, other than the noise that the machine is making, um, it's a very peaceful, clean environment, and I don't mind being in that little tunnel. Uh, and I can meditate and think positive thoughts in that MRI. So I actually feel when I come out of the MRI machine, I feel very at peace with myself and what's going on. Then I walk upstairs to the doctor's office, eight floors up and sit in the waiting room. And it's, it's a neuro oncology waiting room. So it's filled with patients at some stage in their brain cancer battle. And it, you know, we have our, I have flashbacks of the past when I was at certain phases that people were at. So some people have staples in their head or they're bald because they've lost their hair from all all the treatments. And it's a very tangible reminder of different stages I was in, in the past. And I'm, you know, not obviously, but I'm filled with gratitude at my current situation compared to some of those patients and what they're going through. Um, and then, then, you know, there are elements of fear that creeps in. The doctor calls us in and we have the doctor well-trained. The doctor used to like to do a little small talk. Where did you guys vacation this summer? What did you guys do the last six months? And I say, Hey doc, I'll tell you all of that, but we need to like, the first thing that comes out of your mouth needs to be, 
things are okay or things are not okay. We need, if I'm going to tell you in a relaxed way what I've been doing the last six months, I need to know if I'm going to, I need to know how I'm going to tell you that. Right. So now she, the first words out of her mouth is, um, things look good or uh, I haven't heard things don't look good. So all we've heard for the last 12 years is things are looking good. The MRI looks good. And then she runs me through a bunch of tests and we talk about the next six months. And um, that moment of getting that news is just full of relief, excitement, elation. It's just a deep, like, ah, finally, okay, we got some good news. Then she gives, runs me through a bunch of tests just to make sure that even though the MRI looks good, that my body's still functioning well. Then we drive home. And the nice thing about having an hour-long drive after and before the news is talking with my wife about, you know, it's talking about the what-ifs on the way to the appointment and talking about the what are we going to do the next six months? We've got to make it awesome because <laughs> we don't know if we've got another six months after this. So we're either planning a vacation or planning an experience or planning something super cool to do with the kids um, over the next six months and making sure that we are injecting fun and awesome adventure into our lives during the times we have to do that. We still have to, you know, pay the bills and, and work normal lives like everybody else and send our kids to school, drive them to all their activities. Life is busy and hectic every single day. But we have to make these little pockets of time in the in that little time period to make sure we're taking time out from that busy life to do something great and bonding as a family and uh, exciting and new that we haven't done before. Uh, I don't want to call it a bucket list because that's got kind of a negative connotation to it. But we're just living life to its fullest during that six month period and hoping when the next appointment comes up, we're going to get another one of those chances. So what, if anything, has changed about your day to day? Because, of course, life goes on. You got to make, like you said, you got to shuttle the kids around. You got to go to work. Um, but how's your perspective changed? Well, I. Um, so let's say. Let's say this happened this weekend. We're at a sports event and, you know, the team's not doing so well or, you know, someone's kids including my own might may not be playing them as much as we think we should. A lot of parents go to a really negative place and they start attacking verbally somebody, uh, some victim on that bench that's responsible for that. Mm. And I, I, I don't go there anymore. I, for me, I'm like, my kid is happy and healthy and alive. She's hanging out with her friends, even if she's on the bench and she's, you know, 14 years old and having a good time out there. So what uh, if, if she's not playing or she's not the star on the team or whatever some other parents' expectations are? I'm grateful that they're able to have this experience. And we can take any experience we have in life and we can look at it as a positive or a negative. So when I wake up every morning and I'm breathing, I'm immediately grateful. I got another day. Even though you know I've got this six-month period, it's still a day-by-day -day existence. I'm grateful that I woke up. I'm grateful that I'm breathing. Now I have a choice on how I'm going to look at the good and the bad and the ugly that happens to me today. And I'm going to choose to focus on the many good things that happen during the day instead of the 
maybe not so good things that are happening. I kind of just, I'm Teflon with the, the negative things and I'm super um, attentive and grateful for the little things in life that are happening that are, can be looked at in a positive and enriching way. I'm, I'm fearful for people that um, go about their day and they attach themselves to the not so positive things that are happening. I think that's part of what led me to my toxic environment with my body but focusing on positive things that are happening and the positive people in your life, they, it might be the smallest gesture that someone does for you. But if you're busy focusing on the negative things, you're not going to notice that small gesture and it's not going to make you feel like warm and fuzzy on the inside because you're too busy phys, uh, focusing on outside stuff that's negative. So my daily perspective is completely changed just by how I'm welcoming positive things into my life instead of, uh, acknowledging negative things that are happening. They're all going to happen, but I'm choosing to focus on only the ones that I want to. I feel like we should drop the mic, drop the mic, boom, because okay, boom. that was like, you just nailed it. So all those people have normal brain. We all have normal brains, but you had, um, an ab ironically an abnormal brain. And now <laughs> You have an abnormal brain in the sense of you have rewired your brain for positivity. So uh, when we are born, uh, you know, we have these ancient human brains that are still wired for survival. They are not wired to make us thrive and make us happy and have us live fulfilled lives. They just make us um, stay alive. And I love that you just said the word Teflon because Rick Hansen, who has written Buddha's Brain and other amazing books, um, literally said, Naturally, our brains are like Teflon for positive thoughts and Velcro for negative. You have reversed it. I've never yeah. thought of it like Velcro. That's a great analogy right there. And great you know why? It's because gratitude. You go through gratitude. And gratitude is the most high vibrating frequency that you can have in, in an emotion. And... Um, I talk in my other podcasts about the books by Dr. Joe Dispenza that got me through my latest um, near-death incursion where my uterus started hemorrhaging and um, I had to get blood transfusions or I, I nearly died on a hiking trail um, of a stroke or a heart attack. I, I, I had not enough blood and um, I made it. Um, they literally called me when they got my blood test. They called me and said, you need to come in right now, or we're sending an ambulance right now. Um, and I started, once they got me a stable and I knew I was gonna live to have surgery, I um, started reading Dr. Joe Dispenza's work. I'd, I've been reading it, but I started reading it more. And it's all about how do you shift your energy frequency to one of gratitude so that you heal faster. And so that you heal things that other people say can't be healed. And I don't know if you did this intentionally or accidentally, but when you shifted to possibility and when you used visualization, which you said in the beginning you used and um, gratitude for just this opportunity, this chance, uh, it completely shifts the stress system in your body and it turns on the healing system. And I would sit there in waiting rooms, um, not as severe as the one you described, but waiting rooms where people were not going in for fun things. 
And I would be having tears of joy coming down my face because I was doing this gratitude meditation in the, in the waiting room. And then I'd go into this procedure, whether it was an MRI or an ultrasound um, and something that, like you said, could be really uncomfortable. And I would have to, I would tell the doctors, hey, I'm not crying because of you. I'm not crying because of stress. And if you see tears, it's because I'm doing this meditation and it's really feels good. <laughs> okay, can we, copy? Can we uh, have some more of that? Uh, so I just want everybody to know that you can do what you did if you start noticing and put in perspective that my kid's on the bench, but she's happy and it's not a big deal. She's going to, and even if she's not happy, she's going to learn a lesson from this and I'm going to help her find it, you know, or help it find her within her. Uh, the conversations that I have with my daughter, they've always been good, but after nearly dying twice, uh, it's unbelievable the, question, the conversations we have. We're driving to school today and she says, mom, do you think where we live has a lot of soul? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I said, well, yeah, I do. I said, but when I think about places where our family lives, um, you know, pretty conservative, landlocked, brown places, uh, I think they have a lot of soul too because there's soul in the house and there's soul in our yeah. families and there's just this loving connectedness and openness and gratitude for life and savoring of life and versus the judgments that you can have anywhere. So I want to talk a little bit about relationships because you sent me a note. So last a week and a half ago, I brought together a group of people in my home and um, something I want to start doing more often, where I just bring together, um, these were people who had gone through the Academy pilot, which you were a part of, and I ran one week after getting hit by a car. Um, and my rib cage had, was still folded in halfway. Um, I was too delicate for them to actually uh, move it back. <laughs> so, <laughs> to say that I was in pain is an understatement. Um, but that gave me purpose. It gave me perspective to, to do that program and um, helping other people with their problems got me out of mine. So anyways, it was a very special program for me and um, helping me find purpose and feel purposeful in my life. But I brought together um, a, alumni from that and former clients and it was just, I called it my work-life brilliance master's meeting. And you said afterward, you said something about how that kind of connection and energy we had in the house was rare. Can you say more about that and how this has changed your uh, relationships with people, not just your family? Without a doubt. So uh, the reason I said it was rare is I had never met, other than you, in that, in that room in your house, I'd never met any of those people before. So to start off not knowing someone in a room and then end up talking about brain cancer and challenges we're both facing and, and how we've overcome them and how it's made our lives richer, to have that conversation in less than two hours of knowing someone is extremely rare. It's rare for me. I, I go on uh, like brain cancer camp trips where it's all brain cancer people there. And th that's not rare because you want to like connect with those people right away and find out their story and their journey, et cetera. 
and the uh, environment there is conducive to that kind of conversation. And I feel like you created an environment among business professionals and, and wide varieties of life. You created an environment in your house where people could be themselves and be open to each other and have super honest, deep conversations in a very short period of time. There aren't too many places in this world that I experienced that. And I was really grateful that you put that together and I was able to connect with some of your colleagues and friends in that way. And, and I knew it wasn't just me connecting with the person that, that I was um, paired with. I could hear other conversations going in in other parts of your house that were also deep and meaningful. And I don't know if it's not rare for you, then you are incredibly uh, gifted <laughs> and fortunate to have um, this happening on a very consistent basis in your life. Um, the only people, if I go back to the day that uh, I was diagnosed, um, I was working a lot for a company and spending, let's say, 70 to 80% of my day with people in this work environment. Then I got diagnosed, then I got laid off and never saw those people again. They didn't reach out. They weren't the people delivering meals to our house taking care of our kids when we needed care for our kids, driving me to the hospital when I couldn't find a ride to the hospital for, for treatment. Um, so it was a really weird realization for me. I'm spending most of my time with people that don't care for me as a person. They only care for me as a professional and what I could bring to them as an organization. After cancer, we get the worst news of our lives and a community starts to form of people that care about us as people and supporting us as people and making our lives better uh, as a family by helping us with a meal, with chocolate chip cookies at 1030 at night, having things to deliver to our house. One lady was especially kind to our kids. So like kids was her thing. She was giving my kids chocolates and movie passes and all kinds of fun entertaining things so they were taken care of during this process she just wanted to make sure they weren't forgotten and i will never forget a single kind gesture that happened when we were at the lowest points of our lives um and i've reconnected with friends that i hadn't seen in 20 years and made new friends that i didn't know cared about us that much and it was like they had an opportunity to come into our lives and they did. And we developed a friendship that may not have realized itself had I not been diagnosed with cancer. And there was a little piece of wisdom given to me by the radiation oncologist in charge at the very beginning of my cancer journey. And he said, people are going to want to help and they're not going to know how to help. But if they offer to help you out, just say yes. And I thought, that's kind of a weird thing to say. But then then I re he must have seen something in my personality. Maybe it was a pride or I can do this on my own or some part of our discussion that he thought, maybe this guy's not going to open up and allow people to help him out. But that little piece of advice, just being open to people helping me out, was really about being open to receiving love from others that loved me or my wife or our family as a whole. And by just being open to receiving that love, it created 
deep, meaningful relationships with other people that I may have lost out on had I continued down the other path. And I feel like what you created in your house was that open environment to give and receive love from other people, strangers that I'd never met before. And it's a powerful experience. Well, thank you. So um, Denise 2.0 only has those kind of relationships. <laughs> um, I, John 2.0 only wants those kind of relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I definitely yeah. try. I mean, I, I, I sometimes refer to myself as a love machine. And I think we're all love machines if we just don't uh, allow it to happen. Um, it takes vulnerability. It takes letting your walls down. It takes truly seeing people or at least wanting to see them. Um, there was a time when I didn't talk to strangers. I was in my head. I didn't want to bother people. And there was a time when I had too many secrets. I was not living an authentic life. And I, I didn't want, like we were talking about your body telling you the truth. I didn't want to listen to my body because it would require me to make massive changes in my life, which it takes courage and I didn't want to do that. I didn't have this kind of perspective yet. Um, so I feel like I was given a second chance and there's a book out there. It sounds really dry. It's called wired to connect and it's um, sort of scientific, but it's such a page turner and Amy Banks, um, I think that's the name of the author. She's amazing. But she talks about this need we all have for safe environments. And a safe environment is one where you feel fully seen and you can be completely vulnerable and authentic. And when we have those, it's magic to our bodies, our souls, our brains, our specifically our vagus nerve, which one runs from our head and face to our lungs, to our heart and our gut. And if the vagus nerve is healthy, you will be healthy. And you will feel safe around people and you will feel seen. Um, I love when somebody said that the word intimacy is like into me, see, please, please see me. Huh. And I like that too. Isn't that beautiful? And see me and don't yeah. judge me. And I think Eckhart Tolle writes really beautifully about that, about that person on the bus the love that goes between you and that person on the bus is the same love as the one that goes between you and your kids. It's the same love. It's just about how much you amplify it because everybody out there is suffering. Everybody out there is suffering from thoughts, is suffering from physical pain. Um, and they don't always talk about it and they're not going to talk about it until you make the environment really safe for them. And they realize they're not going to be judged. And, um, I guess one experience I had of this was, I, so I run group coaching cohorts in corporate America, and um, it's groups of six people. They pass each other in the hallways. They see each other in conferences and offsites and things like that, but they don't really know each other. And I do this exercise that I did not invent. It's called a lifeline exercise where they start at age whatever. They can start at age born and up to today, what have been the big milestones in your life and where were they on the emotional spectrum for you? And I used to not share my own life story because I thought that was selfish. Like, it's not about me. I'm the facilitator. And these things would be really boring because people didn't feel safe sharing the true 
them. So one day I just said, all right, I'm going to share my story. (laughs) (laughs) And from the minute I start talking, people are just like, what? Because we make stories up about the people we see. And we just make up stories. And usually we make a they're better than me story or a they're less than me story based on instantly what we see, what our, how our brain sizes somebody up. Because that's the whole social pain, status pain. Our brain is putting people in a hierarchy. And, you know, I'm a pretty confident presenter. I usually wear a suit. I look like I have my shit together. And then I start talking about things that have happened to me. And you can just kind of see the jaws drop on the ground. and I, Oh, oh, she's been there. Oh, I can talk to her. Like, oh, okay, that's what this is about. (laughs) (laughs) And then after that, like, okay, I I guess I need to do that every time because then people got real. And I had one woman who, she's a type three on the Enneagram, which is the achiever. You never show vulnerability. Um, You never cry. You just are tough. You get things done. You're successful. She's crying and she she says, What the hell just happened? <laughs> and she's laughing and crying at the same time. Like, yeah, welcome to humanity. <laughs> you can bring your yeah. self to this room. So I am blessed that I get to create environments like that. And um, and if I ever sense that I don't feel like I can do that, then it's not an energy I want to be around a lot of. So I'm pretty picky about who I surround myself with. Um, And it's why I was single for, you know, six years after my divorce. Um, And you just met the person that I'm with. And like, there was, I had no hesitation about inviting that person into my home with all these strangers um, watching me work, which Normally, that could be a very vulnerable thing. You've got this person in your life, this romantic partner, and they're going to watch you work. (laughs) (laughs) That could be really awkward. Um, But there's zero awkwardness because we just started things off um, completely authentic. So, um, yeah, it's lovely. I'm very, very fortunate that I got this chance because I um, wasn't like this before. I was going to say, you know, the the us that we knew back in graduate school, going from 1.0 to 2.0, the 2.0 might not do it justice. I mm-hmm. think it's a much bigger change than 1.0 to 2.0. Because uh, I, I certainly wasn't remotely anywhere where I am now approaching and, and viewing life. And I didn't, I just never gotten to know you on this deep of a level back in graduate school we were both busy writing papers reading books and doing that kind of stuff so i'm amazed it was a very head-based program and um bringing your heart was optional as is most education most educational programs and and work too it's very head-based head-based yes um but the heart is ruling like those parents at the soccer game or whatever, you know, the crew, whatever the, whatever sport it was, uh, those parents are yep. being ruled by the heart right there, but they, um, they're not, they're not grounded in 
this perspective that we're talking about. Um, after I after I did the Stanford program, I did do a heart based program, and that was my coaching program. And I actually chose it because it was very respected, and it was based on a lot of philosophy and science and all that. Um, but I also knew it was secretly very heart based, and or at least I found out very quickly. And um, one of the exercises we did there, so my teacher was the founder of New Ventures West, James Flaherty, and he had us do this exercise that we sat in a circle, two circles, facing, um, so I was in the circle facing outward, and then we had a ring of chairs facing inward, and us, those of us in the center just stayed in our chair and everybody else rotated. And he had us all say the same phrase at the same time. And it was something to the effect of saying to your partner, it went something like this. Everyone I know and everyone I love is going to get sick and die. And you had to repeat this over and over. And then you would, you'd, you'd say it and then your partner would say it to you. And you had to keep eye contact. You'd say it and then your partner would say it to you. And then he would say, switch. And a new, new, new human being, a new soul was sitting across from you and you would say this to them and they would say this to you. And <laughs> I, um, I enjoyed this exercise because I feel, I'm trying, I don't even know if it's a because, but looking back on it, I remember just thinking, thank goodness, finally, we're saying it out loud. Finally, the elephant in the room is getting, you know, is, is getting called out. And it felt like such a relief to me. And people were crying and I was just like smiling. And one of my friends afterwards said, oh my gosh, when I was sitting across from you, it just felt so good. It didn't feel like you were gonna freak out and it just felt like you could handle it. <laughs> like, I felt so relieved and and then that was part one. And then you couldn't say anything when that was done. The next, ex the next part of the exercise was now go out and walk the sidewalks for the next hour and a half. And so you've just gone through this half hour experience of only saying that. And now you're out seeing humanity in a completely different light. Normally we walk down the street thinking about point A to point B and all the things that are annoying us in between, you know, uh, just our thoughts. And we don't make eye contact with people. We don't smile at people. Um, we don't talk to people. And I just remember that day going through and just feeling this love for every person I saw, every stranger that I saw. I'm like, you're me. And I have a secret for you. You're going to get sick and die. <laughs> I just want you to know this. I didn't, I didn't tell anybody this. I didn't tell anybody this. But I wanted to. And, um, I mean, the irony is... Um, one of my dear, dear friends who was doing the exercise with me um, was tragically and accidentally killed um, in a park when she was um, uh, 31 and, or 33 and um, a month before her daughter turned one year old. And I mean, horrific, horrific loss. Yeah. But she was a person who had such perspective that she lived and she left a huge, you know, gap in the fabric of so many lives. But um, 
she got it at a very young age. We met when she was 27 and I saw her go from this um, frenetic energy to this grounded soul who made every day count. Um, she did it through finding Buddhism um, and then uh, getting work that helped her help people. Um, but I mean, her, her um, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it a funeral. Her um, celebration of life ceremony was in Golden Gate Park and there were probably 200 of us there. And so short life, way too short, but um, so full of perspective and so full of meaning and so connected. Like she was just completely authentic with every human being and so heartfelt and also brilliant, but she didn't leave with her head. She, um, it was very much heart. So, um, you know, that was the irony. And I don't, who knows how many people, um, if everybody in the, who did that experience is, is still around, but we don't know how much time we have. And um, I am really glad you're still here, John. And I'm really glad and that you're talking with us today and giving people some food for thought. And, you know, I also, when I wake up, um, when I wake up breathing, I try to remember most days I remember to say thank you for this chance, this chance I have to make connections with people, to be with my daughter. Um, so I think if there's nothing else, <laughs> if people could start the day off with that, and see what kind of perspective that gives them, um, it, it wouldn't hurt. What else, I've been blabbering, what else do you wanna offer or say? Actually, I have a question for you. Yeah. I know this is, this is your, you're gonna say this is our thing, but uh, you've been asking the questions, but I, a, a question popped up in my mind. So, you know, even if we choose to focus on the positive and even if we're grateful when we wake up, sometimes life can be too much and it could just be an especially sucky week or an especially sucky day. And you feel like life is taking over this positive approach that I would like to take on a daily basis. And I'm sure you do too, but do you ever feel that way? And if so, if you feel like, the table's starting, starting to turn on you and life is starting to uh, take you to the negative place. How do, you, how do you regain your perspective? How do you get it back? Because I, I have days like this occasionally and I feel like it's a, it's a struggle to like push that stuff away and get back on the path that I want to be on on a daily basis. Oh, God, constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Constantly. So, um, you know, if we had um, another hour or 45 minutes, we would talk more about um, what the thoughts are that are most painful. Um, because mm -hmm. even though we have these upgraded brains that have perspective, we still have normal human brains that get freaked out and get fearful and that get yeah. angry and, um, want to control things that are outside of our control and feel victimized. And uh, so we have to have tools. And that's why I teach the thought upgrade model. And that's why I 
I teach people to notice what they're feeling and then notice what the story is and then decide what they want to feel instead and think something and do something that's going to get them there. I mean, just last night, I woke up in the middle of the night um, with anxiety. Uh, I had a couple of contracts fall through and um, my daughter's private school tuition is due. And <laughs> it was just like, wow. And then I had to shift to gratitude. So if nothing else, you go from that. So if the story I was having was I don't have enough. And then all, you know, all the calamities that will follow from that. Um, and then how do we get ourselves into a different state? So I, I do my morning meditation. Um, and um, I always feel better after that. It's not just a breathing meditation. It's a very uh, intentional meditation where I am. Um, connecting with whatever you want to call it, the infinite divine, God, the universe, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then I pray and I ask for support. Uh, I, but before I ask for support about specific things, I say everything I'm grateful for. And it's not enough to say what you're grateful for. You actually have to feel the emotion of gratitude because it doesn't get through the brainstem and it doesn't get into the cellular structure um, unless it's coupled with an emotion. So not just platitudes, but really feeling and noticing. So it's a, it's a, it's a daily work. I'm looking at my refrigerator. I have my self-talk, self-talk upgrade cheat sheet on there. Um, and one of the <laughs> phrases is one of the phrases is the one you use. Like I got this, I can do better than that. <laughs> Uh, so really upgrading your core beliefs about who you are. And for, so for me, when I got injured, as an example, you know, I, I went, I freaked out when they told me, when my first doctor said that I was basically going to be crippled my whole life and I wouldn't be able to work, I might as well just start getting Medicaid. Uh, I just graduated summa cum laude and the doctor's telling me I'll never work. <laughs> And I decided when, when I cured uh, rheumatoid arthritis, I decided if I get ill or injured, I will find a way to fix it. So some people might say that's Pollyanna, but if you believe that, you are gonna look for answers in different places than the person who believes, I'm sick, I'm gonna die, <laughs> or I'm sick, I'm just gonna deal with it. So there may be something I run into that I can't fix. Um, but man, I say pull out all the stops. If you, so whether it's meditation or prayer or talking to a buddy and venting, um, dancing to music, uh, get busy, get out of your head and get busy. So whether it's helping somebody and you can go to my website and get the break stress now and it's got 19 tips and you can just pick one. Uh, talk to a stranger, help somebody, give somebody a dollar on the street. And you will shift the biochemistry, uh, <clears throat> which helps, makes it easier to shift your thoughts. But it's a bigger conversation, but it's, I'm glad you asked it because you and I are not living like every moment of the day uh, on cloud nine. We, we got stuff going on. It's about how yes, you I, <laughs> I, I, di I didn't want to, I, I didn't know if we were coming to an end, but I didn't 
want to end on. It's always positive and it's all, I feel like it's a practice and it's like exercising. If you want to be in shape, you've got to exercise on a regular basis. And if you want to be in like good emotional, mental uh, shape, you've got to practice some things on a regular basis to be able to fight that, that negative aura from entering into your uh, mind and thoughts and emotions. So, but I'd like to get busy. That's something I can hold on to and, uh, and relate to. Yeah. Taking a baby step, you know, I, um, I felt so much better when I started editing things and creating things this morning and, um, so getting out of victim mode and, um, taking baby steps forward, gratitude practice, um, that really, if I really want people to learn to upgrade their thoughts, there is the program on my website, upgrade your thoughts, upgrade your life. And it will help you deal with relationships where you're resenting somebody or just angry with somebody or having a difficult time with a boss, whatever, whoever it is. Um, it'll help you with your core identity beliefs because by the way, we're all born too early. So we are too fragile when we're born and we develop this, I'm not good enough story that we carry around secretly with us everywhere. So everybody in that room last week has an I'm not good enough story that they're in different degrees of working on and uh, they don't tell you about it. So people will just come off really confident and really grounded, but they've got that story and they're comparing themselves to you. And so what you found out when you got to have real conversations with people is, ah, they're not who I measured them up to be. They're more real than that. Exactly. And you're like, what? You're amazing. Why do you have an I'm not good enough story? What the heck is that? So I'm trying to wake <laughs> everybody up from their I'm not good enough stories. And then, so they're, in con- they're congruent. The behaviors, the amazing stuff they're doing in the world is congruent with who they are as a person or vice versa. You know, it, um, maybe somebody thinks too much of themselves, you know, and, and they are not doing good, <laughs> good in the world. Those people don't usually come to my house on Sundays. Um, no. I didn't see any of those there. <laughs> it's, uh, but, but those people who are blustering too, they have an I'm not good enough story. They're just compensating in a different way. So I think we need um, more people to realize how amazing that they are. And yeah, we have days when we don't feel it and we need people around us who show us. My daughter is constantly giving me compliments from the heart. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I should like, give her a bigger allowance. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so having people around you that really help you be seen for who you are. Um, and then, I mean, there's so many great books out there. I, my work is a lot of it is based on all the people out there who teach this stuff. I mean, Byron Katie's work is amazing, but it, it requires somebody who really wants to change. And so my work the, and the steer model, you can be really stuck and do the steer model and still get unstuck. So I love it because it meets people where they are. Whereas Byron Katie, her first question is, is it true? Like you'll, you'll say, oh, my boss is a jerk. And she'll say, is it true? And your brain will go, yes, it's true. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, she's going, uh-uh. <laughs> so um, find, the, find whatever work, it works for you. Um, but she, was a, she is a huge inspiration to me. Um, so long answer, but upgrading your noticing and upgrading your thoughts. And the, if you can feel your body and feel truth um, and not in your body, that's huge because usually the I'm not good enough story is a lie. And um, when you really remind yourself 
that you are a unique, amazing human being and remind yourself what you're here to do. And maybe you still have to figure out what you're here to do. Um, but I think all of us, if we just adopted a belief of I'm here to connect with other human beings and make everybody's life a little bit better, we would talk to the people in line at Trader Joe's differently and our checkout person differently and the person at the gas station differently. We would just find these moments of godliness for whatever word you want to use, but this, these moments of humanity where we connect with souls and realize that there really can be a heaven on earth and everybody wants to feel good. And if you make connections with people like that, whatever's happening to you will get put into perspective and will feel better. So be Love courageous, it. be vulnerable like you. I just had you go first, or I don't know if you volunteered, but I just had the sense that if John goes first, everything's going to work out. <laughs> um, so be the person who's courageous, uh, who is willing to connect, willing to give the hug, um, willing to talk to the checkout person like they're a real human being, who, because everybody we meet is struggling and everybody we meet has brilliance. I was checking out the other day at Trader Joe's and this guy was humming and I said, oh, that's a pretty song you're humming. What is it? He goes, oh, it's my own composition. And then he goes to tell me, you know, how he writes compositions and how the vibrations that he makes, even if they aren't a real song yet, he feels them in his solar plexus and they calm him down. I'm like, well, that's freaking brilliant. I'm so glad I that asked is. you were humming. <laughs> <laughs> so more of those thoughts you have about people, those curiosities you have, those compliments that we keep in our heads, just blurt them out. And enjoy the connection that happens and let it calm your vagus nerve. I feel like I don't know what comment to end on other than um, if we can just <laughs> always shift to gratitude. I think that's what you, what you gave us in your lessons about how you live your day instead of going to resentment or going to annoyance. Um, and even if you go there naturally, like somebody pulled pulls in front of you on the road. I mean, I still do this. I still go to annoyance, but then I go to, I'm so glad I'm safe. It's like my bottom, yeah. it's my brain's just habitually now. Oh, I'm so glad I'm safe. I'm so glad everybody's safe. Um, and it feels better. Without a doubt. I'm actually teaching my daughter how to drive right now. And it's totally changed my perspective on how to react to people on the road. Because she's there listening and watching, and I know she's learning from whatever I'm talking to her about. So if I go into a fit of rage, that's what I'm teaching her to do, and it's the last thing I want her to do. So it's, right. a, it's a good way to check yourself, having a little uh, vulnerable audience like that in the car with you. And also our kids, when they're new drivers, they're going to be terrible and they're going to make a lot of people upset. <laughs> they're the ones, exactly, they're the ones pissing people off. <laughs> right? And so we, yeah. don't want, we don't want to be that person who's, who's exactly. angry at some kid who's trying to learn and is terrified. <laughs> I'm surprised the DMV doesn't give you a student driver thing to put on your car the moment they get their driver's permit. Right. Because that would like diffuse a lot of the anger out in the roads right away. Just people knowing, oh, they're learning. They're gonna they're gonna suck for a while. 
<laughs> right. And that's a great yeah. example of when we're authentic about our vulnerabilities, whether it's a sticker or whatever, um, people will give us a break. But yeah, you got to be courageous enough to say, I'm learning. I, I, I make mistakes. And then it's amazing what people will forgive. But you got to be vulnerable. Yeah. You don't have to be perfect all the time. All right. Well, maybe you and I will talk offline about um, upgrading whatever thought is haunting you. Uh, but I, I welcome everybody to um, join the Academy or go and get the break stress now. Um, go and look at the upgrade your thoughts because you have a human brain. It's going to think negatively. It's trying to keep you safe. That's all it's trying to do. And so expect it, but know that it's going to lead you in a direction if you follow it. And so you get to decide where you want to aim. Is this the thought I want to follow? Or do I want to feel something else and do I want to think something else and follow that thought? We always have the choice, but we have to be aware enough of what's going on and, and have the perspective in order to make the choice. So I'll put some of these book references uh, and um, other uh, references I made in the notes and um, I'm gonna thank everybody for listening and thank my friend John and John anything else you want to say uh, I'm very grateful that um, you set this up and you didn't force me to do this but you encouraged me I'm glad I said yes even though I was uh, maybe feeling not worthy and also feeling a little scared to do this um, uh, right now, I feel like I just finished my doctor appointment and got good news from the doctor. I feel relieved and positive and uplifted and really good about the talk we just had. So thank you very much for that. I feel good, too. I'm glad. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, buddy. I, I, I want access to the list of those books, too, even though we were on the this talk. I'll get it I, to I you. I want to read some of those books. Okay. <laughs> thank you. All right. Bye, my friend. Have a great day. Bye. You, too. Thanks for listening to Work-Life Brilliance. If you want to be coached by Denise, join her in the Work-Life Brilliance Academy, where wholehearted humans are becoming the best version of themselves. Accepting applications now at wlbacademy.com.